I wanted to unpack a passage which I read recently and which struck me um, with a kind of fresh relevance and urgency to what we were doing. And I, I just, I'll try and help you to see why I feel it's such an important thing. Ezra chapter 8, we're going to read verses 21 to 23. Uh, it's on page 634 in the Brown Bibles if you've got one in front of you. Just to set a little bit of context here, by the way. Um, Ezra is one of the guys who's lived in exile from his homeland, from Jerusalem, from Israel. And he is uh, about to embark on a journey from captivity, from Babylon, back to Jerusalem with a a large group of people and everything they need um, to begin some of the work back in the rebuilding of, of Jerusalem having been uh, sacked and destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar a hundred years earlier, uh, Ezra's job was to kind of start the rebuilding of the temple. And here he's about to set off. And at the moment, they're under the rule of the Persian emperor Artaxerxes. And so this just explains a little bit about Ezra's mentality as, as as they begin the journey. Verse 21. Then I proclaimed a fast there. So not eating or perhaps not eating and drinking. At the river Ahava, that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. Since we told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So he fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. And just, by the way, just want to say a quick explanation, apology. If you hear the kids um, going off through the meeting, um, at the moment we don't have crash, so obviously they're going to make some noise. Just now, I was, Sethi was saying, guitar, guitar, he wants to come and play it. So I just said, no touch, he knows what that means. So immediately he walked up to the platform, up to the stage here, and starts climbing, going, no touch, naughty, no touch, naughty. <laughs> Knows exactly. That's just sin at work, even in his little body. Um, anywho, what I, what I saw in this passage was a principle of faith, a principle of belief, of putting a faith in God that's characteristic of the saints of God throughout the Bible. A number of stories which illustrate this. We could begin, of course, with this one here. That, as I just explained, in, in the 580s BC, the Israelites had been, had been exiled from their land, conquered by Nebuchadnezzar, and a hundred or so years later, um, there'd been these waves of return as one of the emperors, succeeding emperor Cyrus the Persian had said, you can go back to your land and rebuild it. And then we get all the way to the time of Artaxerxes and Ezra, and uh, there's this fresh wave. And what happens in this, sto- in this little cameo, this little story here, is that Ezra, since he was experiencing favor from this non-Yahweh-worshipping emperor, had the opportunity not only of taking a lot of wealth with him, but also of protection. They could have sent Persian soldiers to protect these Hebrews, these Israelites, on the way back across the deserts, around the kind of Mesopotamian, um, the Fertile Crescent, and all the way back to Israel. He had that opportunity to make, good, to make use of the resources at his disposal. 
And for some reason, Ezra, it says, refused. And it's there in verse 22, I was ashamed, he says, to ask for, for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we told the king that the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him. So he makes this kind of principled decision in his mind that he doesn't, he doesn't want to accept help from this Persian emperor because he, he says, I believe in God, basically. If I believe in God, I don't need your help. Now, this is something that we see in a number of different ways all the way through the Bible with, with a few characters of faith. Back in Genesis 14, remember that the first of the Israelites, the first Hebrew, is Abraham. He's the father of all the Jewish people. And Abraham gets involved in a little skirmish. Back then, if you were, if you were the king of, of a little city, if you were the ruler of a city, you were called a king. Every city was a kind of kingdom province. And there's this little war that takes place between five kings who rebel against these four ruling kings. And, and, and in the kind of fallout of it, the rebels um, get defeated, get squashed. And Abraham's, um, his sort of relative lot is in a place called Sodom. This is before Sodom is destroyed. He's in Sodom, and he and his family get captured, taken off by these four kings, and Abraham thinks, I'm going to do something about this. So he gathers 318 of his trained men. He goes in pursuit. He defeats them. He brings back all the captives and the wealth that these kings had stolen. And on his way back, he he goes uh, past Jerusalem, and he he goes to Sodom. And when he arrives back at Sodom, he, he greets the king of Sodom, Sweet, do you mind taking him out? Thank you. Um, when he gets back to Sodom, let me just take a pause while Sethi cries his heart out. He's probably just lost a raisin or something like that. When he gets back, the king of Sodom says to him, look, just give me the people and you can keep all the treasure that you got. You deserve it since you captured it all back from Kedul Elmer, who's the king who... who he defeated. And Abraham's response in Genesis 14 is this, verse 22. He said, I have lifted my hand to the Lord. Just to say, I'm a worshipper of God. I've made an oath before God. He says, to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I've made Abraham rich. Jump ahead into the book of Judges. Hundreds of years later, when the people of Israel are living in the land under these guys called Judges. They had no kings at the time. And um, you can just imagine characters like, like Judge Dredd. But these guys are deliverers set up for a particular period, a particular kind of um, purpose. And one guy is called Gideon. The Israelites are, are really under it with the oppression of the Midianites at the time. And Gideon this sort of cowardly um, hiding man is picked out by God and said, you're going you're to be the deliverer of my people. And so Gideon ends up leading the army of Israel to go and fight the Midianites. The Midianites have 135,000 soldiers. So we're not talking about the small skirmish that Abraham was involved in. This is something on an entirely different scale. And what does God do? He, first of all, um, Gideon has... Seven, uh, sorry, let me just get the figures right. He has 32,000 men to fight 
these Midianites, 135,000. Then God gives them a couple of instructions. First of all, he says, tell everybody in the army who's afraid. Now, they had reason to be afraid. There were 32,000 of them up against 135,000. He says, everyone who's in the, in the army who's afraid can go home. Now, I know in modern warfare, that is um, called desertion. You get shot for that. You, you run away from the front line because you're afraid. But God says to Gideon, tell all the guys who are scared to go home. And as a result, 22,000 of them leave and leave just 10,000 Israelites. And then God says to him, okay, that's still too many. Now I want you to go down to the river and um, get all these guys to drink from the river and just watch them. And he sets up this strange test whereby the men, how they drink is somehow God's filter for deciding which guys are going to go with Gideon and which ones aren't. So whether they lap or whether they get down on their knees, it says um, they, they fall into two camps. And 300, just 300 of the men are these guys who lap like dogs. And the rest on their knees are disqualified for some reason, unknown to us, I suppose. And so Gideon's army is whittled down and down and down. But the reason is important right there in Judges 7 verse 2, says, where God says to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. So God has a purpose and a plan in reducing the army down to just 300 guys. He says, so that when they win, it's obvious that I did it. So we're seeing the same theme run through all these stories. Ezra wants the Israelites to experience the protection of God that would obviously be God's protection. Abraham doesn't want to receive wealth from the hand of Sodom, um, the king of Sodom, because he says he wants his wealth to obviously be, co- be coming from God. And Gideon, his victory is to obviously come from God. And so they go against all odds and they experience risk, danger, all these kinds of things. Another one of these little cameos is in the book of Daniel. Again, this is sometime around the exile. Nebuchadnezzar in the 580s conquers. He pulls all these Israelites out of the land. He brings some of the elite into his capital city of Babylon. And three of these guys are called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember the names from the the stories we read as kids. And these three guys face a challenge at one stage in their life where Nebuchadnezzar builds an enormous golden statue and tells the entire kingdom to uh, bow down and to, to worship it. And it's a kind of a test because these guys who worship God, don't, they're not into idolatry and they refuse to worship the golden statue. Some of the jealous Babylonian officials who don't like them tell tales on them, essentially, to Nebuchadnezzar. They get called up before Nebuchadnezzar. He's absolutely furious because his word was seen to be like the word of God. You disobey me, you're dead. That's essentially it. And there's this little interaction between them where he challenges them. He says, you better, you're going to get another chance, basically. You better worship this thing or that's it for you guys. You're dead. And they reply in this way in, verse, in Daniel 3.16 says that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image 
that you have set up. So in their case, they take this kind of a gamble where they say, if God is real, which we believe he is, that's the reason we worship him. And if he's real, he can save us from this situation, no matter how impossible that might seem. So we have these four stories. We could choose others from the Bible that illustrate this principle. That men and women of God are willing, essentially, to take a risk, whether in the case of Ezra, it's it's danger, whether it's the risk of being poor in Abraham's case, or of annihilation in Gideon's case, or of just being burned to the crisp in this fiery furnace in these guys' case in the book of Daniel, as an act of faith, as an act of dependence upon God. And what I want to ask is, what's happening here? What is the principle? Why does it matter to us? Why... These stories are given here to illustrate to us what the life of faith looks like so that you and I can imitate this life and exercise the same kind of faith and experience the same kind of power of God in our lives. So what are we seeing here? I think there are two big principles at work that motivate these decisions, these very strange decisions, you could say. On the one hand, there's this desire to glorify God. It's all about the glory of God. You note that in in each of these cases, what they're concerned with, what's their driving passion, is how God should appear to the nations or to other people. God's reputation, in other words. So for Ezra, talking to the Persian emperor, he doesn't want to receive the emperor's Help, because he says, I think my God's a real God, and I want you to see that he's real. Now, these guys lived in what you could call like an honor-shame culture. These are kind of one of the categories you heard in, in recent sort of sociological studies. You have guilt cultures and law cultures, and the Middle East was generally an honor-shame culture, whereby what you, um, the, the kind of key social medium of power was honor and shame that would sort of affect the way people's behavior was regulated. Um, This is still true in the Eastern world to a massive extent. I read just the other day that in in Japan, whereas in in the West you have this social anxiety disorder where people are are afraid to interact with other people for fear of how they might come off, what they look like, um, whether they'll embarrass themselves. In Japan... Being such a distinctly different culture, social anxiety disorder takes the form of being, embar- being afraid that you'll embarrass other people, which obviously is a completely different way of thinking. They're not worried about embarrassing themselves. They're worried about bringing shame on friends and family or on co-workers or whatever. That is how it can, it can come to, to light. And that's the kind of thing that you're seeing here in these passages, that these guys have this... this desire to, to make sure that God looks great before the watching world. And it's a kind of honor-shame thing. He's my God, and I want to display him in the best possible light. You know, just to think in the very opposite again, when you think about a Western culture that seems to have so sort of lost this idea of honor and shame, um, you know, when guys go into international sporting events and they, they start taking drugs, all they care about is their own glory, not the shame. They don't think about the shame that comes upon their nation. But you think about what the choices of these men, their passion was to make sure that God looked awesome in whatever situation they were placed in. They had a claim to uphold. 
The claim was that Yahweh, the living God, is the only God, is the true God. There are a number of passages in Isaiah where this echoes through. Isaiah 42, God says, I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Over in chapter 44, it says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And are you not my witnesses? Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. So again and again throughout the Bible, God says, I'm the real God. I'm, there's all these other gods that other nations are worshipping are false gods. There's only one who's real, and it's me. And God's people had this claim to uphold before the nations. Now, you think about some of the stories that I was telling you, some of the cameos from the Bible. In so many of these situations, it looked like God wasn't the real God. In Ezra's case, the Persian emperor could easily have just thought, well, if your God's so great, why are you in exile in the first place? The same, of course, in, in the fr- Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There they are, defying Nebuchadnezzar, saying, no, we only worship our God. And Nebuchadnezzar's thinking, well, the God you worship is obviously weak because I defeated him, basically. I, I've already squashed your people. I, I tore down your temple. Why would you hold to worship of such a weak and ineffective and impotent God? Of course, we know when you're inside the story of the Bible, you know the reasons why this has happened. You know why the people of God have been exiled and why they've been defeated, and it's because of their faithlessness. So God is willing to let his people go. He's willing to sort of cast them adrift, to teach them a lesson, to bring them home. But pagan emperors aren't really interested in these kinds of niceties and subtleties. They're just interested in power. And so here, these guys... In what opportunity they have. Yeah, they've been exiled. Yeah, they've experienced massive abandonment by the hand of God. But in what opportunity they have, being Ezra, being all the other stories, they they want to take their opportunity to demonstrate to a watching world that the God they believe in is still the true God. And therefore, they make the choices that will most glorify him in their situation. So that's one impulse. It's the impulse to glorify God. A second impulse that goes with it, though, is, is an impulse to test or to a need, you could say, to exercise your faith and to experience the reality of God. And here's what I mean. I think that there's a sense in which in these stories, God's people put God to the test. Now, I know that if you know your Bibles, that that expression is, is used by Jesus when he's quoting the book of Deuteronomy, and he, he's tempted by Satan. Climb up on the temple, throw yourself off. Doesn't the, don't the scriptures say that the angels of God will catch you lest you strike your foot on a stone? And Jesus answers Satan and says, haven't you read, that it says you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So he says, I'm not going to do your stupid fancy trick, 
just to show that God's real, because that would be denying the scriptures I believe in. So obviously, there's a way in which you can test God, which is, which is wrong. A way in which God says, I'm not going to be happy with that if you test me in this way. And I think what Jesus is touching on, when you look at the context of the quote he pulls, by, is demanding a miracle because you're questioning God. So starting from the kind of assumption Okay, of a kind of cynicism towards God, whereby you put yourself in a position where, well, God, you better show up here. I demand that you show up to demonstrate your reality. The story where the quote comes from, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, was when the Israelites were testing God in the wilderness by grumbling and complaining about their lack of food and water. And God says, you shan't test me in this way. They were operating from a position of cynicism and saying, demanding that God demonstrate his power and might. But what I'm trying to say to you guys is that there is a way in which you can test God which is valid and real and even biblically sanctioned. And I think that's what's happening in these passages. That there's a way in which God actually delights in his people deliberately depending on him as their last resort in life. That's what I'm, I mean. One of the examples in history of this is a guy called George Muller. He was, um, he was a German who, got, who lived a kind of crazy, reckless life and got saved and decided he wanted to be a missionary. And he found his way to Britain, became a pastor in the West Country, and in Bristol set up an orphanage that took care of 10,000 children in, in, its, in its existence. This guy made a principle that he would never ask for a penny from anybody to open and run this place, to build the buildings, to feed the children even, or to heat the place. He never asked anyone for money, and instead he would get on his knees and pray everything into existence. He would pray for the money he needed for fuel that day to run the boiler. He would pray for the food to feed the mouths of these hungry children, which I'm sure at any one time they would have hundreds um, that they were taking care of. And when asked, what on earth, why did he make these decisions? He gave, why did he set up the orphanage in the first place? He gave three reasons. Listen carefully to this. He said, firstly, that God may be glorified should he be pleased to furnish me with the means, and it's being seen, and it's being seen that it is not a vain thing to trust in him, and that thus the faith of his children may be strengthened. He says, my first reason for setting up the orphanage was to show other people that you can trust God. And that's why he made these principled decisions, why, in a sense, he tested God by relying on him, by leaning into him, saying, you're, you're my backstop. I don't have any other means of, of, of feeding these kids other than you. He then said there's other two reasons for setting it up were for their spiritual good of the kids and for their physical good. But he said those things came secondary to, number one, I want to glorify God. So his aim was to demonstrate God's re- reality. And he goes on and explains it in this way. He said, it seemed to me best done by the establishing of an orphan house. It needed to be something which could be seen, even by the natural eye. Now, if I, a poor man, simply by prayer and faith, obtained without asking any individual 
the means for establishing and carrying on an orphan house. In other words, if I got everything I needed to build it, to run it, to feed them, then there would be something which, with the Lord's blessing, might be instrumental in strengthening the faith of the children of God. Besides being a testimony to the consciences of the unconverted. So he says it would have this power to waken the church to make them realise that God is real and that he answers prayers. And not only the church, but maybe some people who aren't in the church would also look and think, wow, how is this possible but by the grace and the power and the mercy of a living God? So here's what I'm trying to say to you. I think, yes, on the one hand, it's a desire, as Muller explained, to glorify God, that people make these choices. But on the other hand, it's also an impulse to to test your own faith and to test the reality of God's promises by leaning into him in such a way that unless he acts, you're dead. You've lost. It's game over. It has to be God. And what I'm trying to put to you guys is this, that I think that this is something God takes pleasure and delight in. I know it because in the book of Hebrews... He says that it's impossible to please God except by faith. It's in Hebrews 11.6. Without faith it is impossible to please him. Forever would draw near to God, must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. God is only delighted in one thing that we can offer, and it's our faith. Our, our explicit, determined willingness to trust him and take him at his word. And I'd also go further and say, look, it's not only that God's pleased with it, but the fact is that we need to exercise this faith from time to time, or even constantly, to prove God's reality for our own sake. And that as we do so, faith begins to give birth to more faith. The more you discover the reality of God in life, the more that you have faith for the next challenge, and the more that your faith also then inspires other people. So George Muller, there he was, um, this is in the Victorian era, he inspired guys like Hudson Taylor, who got on a ship, went to China, and did the same thing. He relied on God for the sustenance of his missionary endeavours in China. He founded the China Inland Mission, which has supported, and still exists to this day under a different name, has supported probably thousands of missionaries. But he began it as an act of faith, inspired by George Muller, partly. I think also a hundred years later, there were a couple called um, Francis and Edith Schaefer. Francis was a Presbyterian pastor from the States, and they decided they were going to be missionaries in Europe at the request of their denomination. They went to Switzerland. They opened a house, a home that they called Labrie, which means shelter, and they began to welcome people into their home. But Francis made it a principal decision that he would not ask for money or advertise, and he'd just say, I want to see what happens when we believe that God's real and we pray to him. And not only did they have everything they needed practically, but God began to bring people to them, and they came in streams. People from all kinds of backgrounds. And Francis was uniquely cut out to deal with all the things that were happening in the 60s. All these kids were coming off drugs and coming from kind of hippie lifestyles and confused by all the philosophy they'd been learning at university or that was being populated through the media and literature. And they were just completely um, confused about life and about God and about reality and meaning. And he was there 
dialoguing every night with people, and the more that came, the more got saved, and the more that brought other people, and it grew and grew. And it still exists again to this day, except it's now an international movement of these places. But inspired, I think, in part by the faith of guys like George Muller. So you can see how faith begins to give birth to more faith, not only in yourself, but in the lives of other people. So there we have these two impulses that I think are seen in the life in the story about Ezra and these other stories. Desire to glorify God and a desire to put God to the test in, in the most positive way, to say, God, what happens when I actually believe you? Now, why is this important for us? Let me just give you a few reasons. The first is because I think we're called to the same kind of faith personally. The same kind of faith that's willing to trust God in your personal challenges and circumstances. Now bear in mind that the Bible, as I was saying last week, is a story that spends a lot of time looking at the lives of individuals. And when you read Hebrews 11, which is a kind of anthology of the lives of men and women of faith, it's focusing on specific individuals, champions of faith. And it tells me this, if it tells me nothing else, that God is paying attention to your faith. You personally, God cares about the degree and the strength and the reality of your faith as an individual. And I think that in a sense he wills us on that we would find that our names would be written in his hall of fame as these guys were in Hebrews 11. And so then you as an individual have a a choice, don't you? You can live a faithless life. Which in Israel's case might have been, okay, to accept the help from the king of Persia, the emperor of Persia, Artaxerxes, and not depend on God. But in a sense, it's a life that's, that's devoid of that certain knowledge that God is behind you, that he's backing you up. It's, it's going to be a safe and ultimately a weak life, I think. No one ever achieved anything great for God if they were unwilling to exercise faith in him at some point. But you can also choose... To live a life that, that de- with determined obstinacy says, no, if God is real, I'm going to lean into him, I'm going to trust him, I'm going to rely on him. What would it look like if you did? It would look like a person who has a primary concern for the glory of God in every decision, above every other factor. Think about George Muller, how he ranked his decisions for opening up the orphan house. The glory of God, then helping the kids. I think that's the way we should make every decision. That's the life of faith. It begins to hit the road, of course, when you start thinking, what does that mean for me choosing courses, choosing jobs, marrying, whether I have kids, how much money I give away. You begin to see how, well, when you push it through that filter, what brings glory to God, it affects every decision you make in life. It would look like you living in conscious obedience to his commands, even when they're hard. The life of faith is a life of obedience, because to obey requires faith. Just think about the daily struggles you face with temptation. It is always faith that gets you through temptation, because it's saying, I believe God, I believe his word, and I believe that he's good, and that whatever he says is going to be better for me in the long run, even if it doesn't feel like it right now. It would look like you you being willing to make sacrifices along the way. 
sacrifices that maybe cause you to lose out in the short term as an expression of trust in the God who will deliver you in the long term or who will recompense you in the long term. It would look like you being willing to take risks also. And I think it's always a healthy and helpful question to ask yourself. What am I doing which, if God were not involved, would fail? I also think that this whole principle is important for us as a church. And this is what kind of has been my main motivator in wanting to just take a break from our series and open up this little passage from Ezra. That we're called as a church to exercise this same kind of faith that Ezra exercised. The the faith that wants to prove that God's real. I think it's possible to build a church without faith. I think it's possible to do all the things that can attract a crowd without exercising any faith. In 2 Timothy, Paul says that the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, in other words, the plumb line of what God's Word says about all of life and faith. But he says that having itching ears, they'll accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. It's such a vivid expression, isn't it? That your ears are itching. And the idea is that they're itching to hear things that they want to hear. Now, there are lots of guys these days who are building churches on that principle. It's like they've never read what Paul has to say and they think, well, how can we grow the church? What are people itching to hear? That's what we'll talk about and it's going to work. And it does work. So people substitute what God's word says and what is faithfulness to God in church life. And it's put in its place entertainment, put in its place rituals, you know, just religious rituals. That's something very common that you'll experience when you go into churches across this country where they've long ago, centuries ago, forgotten what the gospel was, forgotten what the message of Christianity was. And in its place substituted a bunch of rituals that you go through that make you feel slightly religious in the moment and a little bit better about yourself before you go back to work the next day. That's a substitute false gospel for what the Bible says is the real thing. People substitute all kinds of things because it it works. Because you can do things in church life that will gather people but that don't require an ounce of faith and, and belief in the real God and his willingness to bless people who trust him. On the other hand, if you're a church that wants to demonstrate that God's word is true and that he is real, what would you look like? I think that's a really important question for us to keep asking, not just now, but consistently in the decades to come. What would we do, what actions would we take, what choices would we make that best express our our, our genuine trust that God's real and that he blesses those who seek him? I think such a church will have stories of God's provision, his miraculous intervention, doing in things that were otherwise impossible, but because you believe that God's real. Why can't we do it if God's real? That's the attitude. I think such a church will shun the idea that you can manipulate and manufacture an environment in which people will become Christians and God will break out and revival will happen. 
That's a, a, an idea that began to crop up 150 years or so ago in the States and took hold where people thought if we just go through these, this formula, like painting by numbers, we can, we can manufacture a revival in this town and then we'll do it again wherever other towns we go. But all it is is just whipping people into a frenzy and manipulating people to make a decision. And actually, a church that shuns that, a church that says, no, real salvation, the real thing, is a gift of God alone. And it's only in response to our prayer and our trusting the ways that he said that he'll move, which is by preaching the gospel, that we'll see a genuine move of God and real salvations and lives changed and transformed permanently and irreversibly. It looked like a church that's willing to, to follow the leading of the Holy Spirit and go against the tide of the culture that it's in. Sure enough, we might be doing things that make you cringe from time to time. We might say things that feel a little bit insensitive and a little bit embarrassing in the context that we live in, especially when the greatest sin, if you want to call it that, in modern Britain today is to cause somebody offence. What a joke. Offending somebody isn't a problem. You have to offend people if you want to tell them the truth. Imagine if doctors took that on board and it began to infiltrate hospitals and GP surgeries that the last thing we want to do is hurt your feelings. So we better not tell you what's really going on. It's such nonsense. It's such a lie from the pit of hell. But a church that's following the leading of the Spirit, it's going to be winsome. It's going to be loving, but sure enough, it's going to tell the truth. I want to add a, just a couple of comments then before I round off, which is just that I think if we desire with all our heart to be this kind of a people, to express the kind of faith that Ezra has here, he says to the Persian emperor, it's okay, we're okay, we believe in God. What do we have to do? How does it work in practice? What are the mechanics of this? Because I think that we could fall into a bunch of traps which would actually cause us to misunderstand what faith is and to do it wrong. Let me just rule out a few things. Firstly, faith isn't laziness. I think you could think that the life of faith from some of the stories I told you, like George Muller or Francis Schaeff or even Ezra here, is a passivity and a laziness that sits back and says, no, 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 we'll just wait for God to do something. And I don't think that's the right understanding at all. God does want us to wait for him to show up, but we don't do nothing in the meantime. Something else I'd add is that faith isn't foolish or pointless risk, just for the sake of it, just for the hell of it, just to see what will happen. That was the problem when, um, when Satan was trying to tempt Jesus to jump off the temple. And he says, we're told not to put God to the test in this way. It was foolish and pointless risk. I was trying to think about this, like, what's the distinction? How do we describe the difference here? And I suppose maybe you could think of it this way, that that testing God in that way, taking stupid risks, is like somebody standing on a mountain and just jumping off and seeing what happens, seeing if God rescues them. But whereas from the other perspective, a life of faith is saying, no, I need to get to the top. I don't have any equipment. I don't have any ropes but I'm going to work my way up and trust that God's going to get me there. It's completely di- different orientation. Do you see what I mean? The one is oriented saying, a, a lack of trust for God, but just saying, let's just see if he's in it. The other is saying, no, we, we are, we've got somewhere we need to go. We've got something we need to do for his glory, and we better find our way up that mountain. 
even if we don't have all the equipment, all the safety guarantees, the nets, the ropes, the harnesses, all that stuff. There was a story just in the paper this week about a guy, um, Alex Honnold, I think his name is, who's recently climbed two and a half thousand foot sheer face in Mexico without ropes. And the video footage of this thing literally makes you feel sick. And I'm not particularly scared of heights, but I was like, I was feeling queasy. Imagine how sick C would be, given her nausea right now, (laughs) if she saw that thing. So faith isn't laziness, it's not foolish, risky choices just for the sake of it, and nor is it arrogance judging others. I think it's possible to think that that some people think that because we have faith, we're superior to other people, other churches, or whatever. And it's nothing like that. But what faith is, and what it's shown to be in the story of Ezra, is is a determined decision, a willingness to take action, an action that says that God's real, an active, dependence, deliberate, willing, voluntary, leaning into him. And listen, isn't that exactly what we believe about salvation? You're not saved through sheer passivity. If you were, it wouldn't matter if you ever heard about Jesus Just being passive would be enough and God would just do the rest. The gospel, the message of Christianity is the only message in the world that actually has the idea of the concept of salvation in it at all. Other religions tell you what you have to do in order to to meet God. Christianity tells you what God has done in order for you to meet with him. But there is always this conditional element. It says you have to actively exercise your faith in me in order to be saved. And it involves this this decision which is so beautifully captured and represented by the act of baptism whereby it's a renouncement of, of, of your past, a dying to sin, a repentance of sin, a willingness to say, I am dead to it. And an, an act of taking hold of Christ and saying, I belong to him. And that's why we get baptized. Because we're saying, firstly, that we're renouncing our sins, saying, I'm going underwater and I'm dead. It's gone. I'm buried. And then we're being lifted up, saying, now I belong to you, Jesus. This is a new life and it's your life. But you can see, even at the heart of the gospel message is that faith is not a, a passive thing, a do-nothing thing. It is an embracing Christ thing and entrusting that he's your stronger, bigger, bigger brother who will get you through, every, um, through the trial, through judgment, through everything that would cast you down and that he will ultimately save you. And so also here, in Ezra, we have this active faith at work, and it has a couple of dimensions to it. On the one hand, there's something he wants to avoid, and on the other hand, there's something he wants to embrace. You see it there in verse 22. He says, I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way, since we had told the king... The hand of our God is for good on all who seek him and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. Just to begin with the negative there. Ezra understood that his faith was was good. His faith would work because God is real. But he says, God can choose to let us go when we forsake him. I think there's nothing more important for God's people than in it. In the, in the act of exercising their faith, the, the heart of it is saying, God, what does it mean to be faithful to you? What does it mean to, to not forsake 
you and risk your abandonment of us. Now when you ask the question, why are churches sick, dying and empty across this country? It's because they they haven't read this verse. It's because they don't realise that God's already spelled it out in scripture. Anyone who forsakes him, that's it. He just renounces that church, or he destroys that church, or he actively kills that church. And you can read about this in the New Testament as well. So it's so vital that in in wanting to be a people of faith, we're also people who, who pursue holiness, who pursue faithfulness to God in our day-to-day life, in our community life, that we, we accurately represent what it means to be his people. By his power, by his grace, but still we, we make that effort. And then to put it more positively, look at how Ezra says that what it means to embrace, to embrace God in this by faith. He says, the hand of our God is for all who seek him. And then in verse 23, so we fasted and implored our God for this and he listened to our entreaty. So Ezra's faith and the faith of the people he was with took the shape of a determined and aggressive even effort to pursue God and pursue his help and pursue his provision and pursue his protection for them as a people. And that's kind of where I wanted to leave it for you guys. That's the thing that's resonating in my heart, that, you know, there's a a bunch of stuff that I don't want us to do as a church in order to try and manufacture God's blessing. I don't think you can. I think there's a way in which we need to exercise faith, which is saying, no, we take you at your word. We believe the gospel's good enough. We believe you're powerful enough, and we believe you can bless what we're doing here. But... But, to be a people of faith means that like Ezra, like the Israelites with him, we have to be willing to enter into a determined pursuit of God in prayer. For them it meant fasting. But I think that as a people we need to be, (laughs) we need to be seeking God's blessing on what we're doing here. On a daily basis. Are you praying for, for this work? Are you praying for your friends that they might encounter God in a way that's, that shows he's real? Are you praying for the provision of finance for this, that it will not just fizzle out and die when we run out of money? Are you praying that God will raise up men and women of God in this place who will be effective as leaders, as disciples, as um, people who can help expand the work of what we do? Are you praying for people to be raised up here who will be fired out into the nations as church planters and missionaries? What we're talking about on, on Wednesday, how Europe needs churches. Europe is in the dire situation. I'd like to be a part of turning this thing around in Europe. I'd like us to have an ambition that we could demonstrate God's reality by training up powerful and effective missionaries to send across the world. Are you praying for these things? Are you laboring in prayer that God would do these things among us? I want to encourage you to do so. I want us to put God to the test in this way and to say, God, if your scripture is true and if you're there and if you're real, which we believe you are, 
do what only you can do with us as a church. And then let's watch and see. It's okay to be out on a limb, as Ezra and his friends were. It's okay to be in a position of vulnerability and risk. Because really it is there when God can demonstrate his power, his all-sufficiency, 